The, uh, about six weeks ago at um, JFK International Airport, there was a stampede. I don't know if you've seen the footage on the news or on, on the web. And what happened was somebody heard a really loud noise and they thought there was some sort of attack in Terminal 8 at JFK and they started to run for the exit and they began to yell, run. And when they did that, you know what happened? Everybody else in Terminal 8 started to follow them and run. Panic set in. You can see video clips where people are diving under the counters. Um, um, Actually, about 20 people or so smashed down one of the doors to get onto the runway out of the building. And then somebody else came round the corner yelling, there's a shot! And so that created more panic. And in the end, there was like hundreds of people trying to swarm out of the building, onto the tarmac... Um, It was so noisy and loud that in Terminal 2 they heard some noise and that broke out panic in Terminal 2. If you've ever been to JFK, those terminals are a fair way apart. And so this panic set in, people were running for their lives, they were screaming, a run, someone actually ran down the hallway screaming, they're coming this way, but of course it was the crowd that was trying to get out with him. And so everybody's still diving under the counters and the cafes. Turns out... There was no issue at JFK. There was no gunshot, um, as someone screamed out. There wasn't, there wasn't some sort of threat. What happened was there was a group of people in one of the pubs at Terminal 8 watching Usain Bolt run the 100 metre during the Olympics. So this happened on August the 14th. And they were so excited, they were banging on the counter, screaming and yelling, and someone who heard it yelled out, we're under attack, and everybody just started to follow, and there was like mass panic. It was crazy. You know, there's, we sort of live in this world where we, we're a bit on edge, aren't we? You know, you think of world events and all the different things that are taking place in our planet and what's happening, and even in Australia, we face it. It's not just in the Middle East or in parts of Africa, but, you know, there's been... Um, sort of unprovoked attacks and incidents in our nation. And I wonder how that makes you feel because we sort of sit and live in this tension that creates almost this um, sense of instant panic that we're not prepared for. And we we can, like they did at JFK um, six weeks ago, is you just follow the crowd no matter what's happening. And there's this sense of external fear, this external what's going to happen next. But when I was watching it and reading the news story about it, because my brother-in-law lives, lives in New York, um, when I was reading about it, I thought, well, it's, there's more than just internal or external panic. There's internal stuff that goes on as individuals. So it's not just what happens on, on, on a sort of grand scale like that. But as individuals, there's things happening in our lives that cause us anxiety. And as, uh, as followers of Christ, so people who are trying to actually... Um, pattern their life after the teachings of Jesus, we still have these things that we're not settled about or causes pain. They're unresolved in our hearts. And so while there's external stuff happening in our culture all around us, there's internal stuff that we carry and it feels like this same sort of sense of anxiety. Maybe there's a a relationship that went really sour at some stage in your past and, and you still feel that pain. Um, you know, things can pop up that remind you of uh, this, the discomfort, the disillusionment. Maybe you're not sure about your future and where that's going to go. 
Or maybe your life hasn't planned out the way you expected. And, and as a follower of Jesus, you're not really sure what's going on. And often we end up asking the why questions to God. Why is God allowing this to happen is often the phrase that either runs through our head or comes out of our mouths. So there's a whole lot of stuff that we could talk about. I could tell you some of my stories, my journeys. You could tell me yours. But we have this shared experience of attention and anxiety of unresolved stuff that really causes um, our sense of panic occasionally when we don't understand what's happening, when our lives don't work out the way we had planned and hoped for. And I think when we don't resolve this stuff, it festers. So we're trying to follow Jesus. You know, we'll come to church on Sunday. Um, You might attend a connect group. You might read the Bible or you you might pray regularly. you're You're trying to actually submit yourself to the teachings of Jesus and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. But you have this festering of stuff that's causing you a sense of anxiety. And so, unfortunately, I don't maybe not just in this congregation, but in every congregation probably around the world, I meet, I've met Christians that, as a result, they over-function. So they do things for other people that that person should do for themselves, but it comes out of their own insecurity. Or they c- control or dominate some of their family members, and they might think in their head they're trying to help them, but in actual fact it's coming out of their own anxiety. And we, Christians are very good at over-functioning. We don't talk about it much because, you know, it's like, don't mention the war. But we, we, we actually are not dealing with the stuff that's causing us to act out of a negativity in our life because we're not really sure why God's allowed it. And we're not sort of sure how to resolve it order to sort of um, work it through. So I think we live in a contrast as, as disciples. You know, we go to work and work's tough and there's issues in family life and, you know, on the way to church you may have had an argument with your spouse or your kids were misbehaving and as soon as you hit that door you have to, oh, I'm good, how are you? Good, yeah, oh, yeah, praise God. You know, so we, we, we have this thing where we, we've got this stuff happening around us, within us and we, God brings us to church, we feel the conviction to come not just to um, sing some songs of worship, but because we want the Holy Spirit to minister and speak to us. Isn't that why we're here? We, we actually want to connect with the God who saved us and loves us and is trying to change and transform us. And what I find when I read the Bible and understand what God's doing, particularly in my life, rather than have me in a state of anxiety, panic, unrest, God's plan is to put me in a pace of peace. Not insecurity, but security. He wants me to be in a place of rest, not unrest. And again, that's partly why we gather together as believers, is not just because we agree on statements of faith, but because we're on a journey of discipleship and that is transformational. That should actually change what's happening in our lives. So you and I are here today because we want to follow what God has for our individual lives and for us as a corporate body of believers at Uni Hill. So here's a question I want to raise with you today. Have you ever really given some deep, proper thought to the process of being discipled? I mean, what is it that God will do for you to bring you into the position and place that he wants for you? About uh, three months ago, I was just rereading through the Lord's Prayer 
And um, I got to that line where it says, you know, not my will but yours be done. And it's like God said to me, that's a good line, Greg, isn't it? You know, when you, you know, you've read different parts of the Bible so often, it's, you almost sort of gla- you know, glance over them or read them really quickly. But that just leapt out at the page at me because I, sort of, I think I've underestimated how strong my will is. You know, it's one thing to sing, you know, your Christ is enough for me, but then when I leave this building after this worship experience, sometimes I feel he's not and I take over. I know you don't, but that's me. Is that not right? You know, we sing these vitriolic sort of statements and, you know, Christians are really good at cliches. And, but what's the journey of discipleship? How does God take us down the path that's his will and not mine, not yours? And if we're really, I think, honest together, often those two things are polar apart, aren't they? His will is not our will. You know, we believe in the will of God if it was the same as mine. Don't we? Everybody said? But it's not. And so what is this journey of discipleship? That's really what I want to raise for you today. And I'm just going to give you one key thought. And it comes out of the life of Peter. I love the Apostle Peter. He was such a bad guy. He reminds me of myself. You know, he thought he was pretty smart. So, you know, like a good part of the rabbi teaching of the time that, that Peter would have received as a young boy before he met Jesus was you had to forgive people, you know, at least three times. And so, you know, when, when Peter, <laughs> Peter says to Jesus, how many times do we forgive? Seven. Peter thought he's being generous because, the, you know, the, the, the traditional rabbi teaching of the day was three. So he throws in an extra four. But, of course, what does Jesus say to him? Well, it's not seven, Peter. It, it's It's infinity. 70 times seven, I mean, just keep going. We see Peter jumping out of the boat, impetuous. You know, he walks on the water, which is miraculous. But then what happens when he notices the storm around him? He starts, starts to sink. When Jesus is arrested in the garden, he's not going to have this idea of his, his rabbi, his master, his Messiah being arrested to be killed. So he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest. I mean, he's my sort of guy. He's all over the place. See, Peter had his will, but Jesus had a different will for Peter. So I love, you know, I think sometimes we sanitize Bible stories. We sort of make them clinical and really spiritual, but they're full of actual drama and real life. Peter reminds me of who we are and the, and the sort of struggles that we have to go, go through. So, I want to uh, just take one incident that you'll know very well, and it's just one simple phrase that Jesus mentions to Peter. And it's in John chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible, we'll just quickly read a few verses just to set the context and help you understand why Jesus says what he does to Peter. And uh, I certainly could pick on a number of the apostles or disciples, but Peter's one of my favourites. So in John chapter 13, uh, just prior to the story we'll read, Jesus has revealed to them that he has to be killed. And so you can imagine sort of being in this inner circle of disciples where you're following the Messiah, all the cultural stuff as a Jewish person waiting for liberation from the Romans. You have all these ideas of of what a Messiah should do and, you know, it should be like an army coming in to liberate, um, you know, us from the oppressors. He has all these ideas in his head. And Jesus actually has a meal with them. And at the conclusion of that meal, 
Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And you would have either read the story or heard the story if you've been in church life for any length of time before. The story itself won't be that new to you. So I'm going to just start from verse 4. So John chapter 13, verse 4. And this is Jesus gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer clothing, wraps a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that is wrapped around him. Verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter. So this is our friend Peter, Mr. Impetuous and Imperfect, just like the rest of us. And Peter says to him, Lord, what, what are you doing washing my feet? Jesus replied, now this is the phrase, you don't realise now what I'm doing, but you, later you will understand. Look at verse 8, I love verse 8. Peter hasn't, you know, hasn't changed, this is his will. He goes, no, this is not, this is not a pleasant you know, Christian, no, no. He goes, no, you shall never wash my feet. In fact, in the original way this is written by John, the apostle who was there, he writes it in such a way that the language is a definite, I'm telling you, I'm commanding you, never. That's actually what the language is like in the Greek. Never. You're not going to do this, Jesus. You're not washing my feet, ever. So look at Jesus. Jesus answers him, well, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. That's a dilemma, isn't it, for poor old Peter? So verse 9, this is Peter again, just makes me laugh, honestly. It's, it's great humour. I just see humour in the Bible all the time. So Peter thinks, oh, okay, I've got to go with it now. So I've said no. Jesus says, well, if you want to have any part of me, you have to let me wash your feet. So what does Peter suggest in verse 9? Well, give me a whole bath then. He says, not just my feet, what about my hands and my head? Well, if you're going to do it, you might as well do it properly. Oh, it's just classic. I don't think we'd be any different, by the way. You know, that's, that's why I laugh so much. I see so much of myself in here. So Jesus says to him, basically, I'm paraphrasing, you don't need a bath, you're already clean because you've been with me. But, you know, I have to wash your feet, Peter. Now, you know, the historical conditions of uh, where this actually took place... Homes didn't have plumbing. There, this, there was no sewage system as we understand it. So any waste, water, um, all that sort of stuff from preparing meals and bathing and anything you'd do in your little home would end up just out on the street. You'd literally just throw it out onto the street. Plus, you know, people often live with animals in their home or at least in a separate area within their space. It was different to the way you and I live. And so journeying from one property to another, so from your place to where they're having this meal, of course your feet would get dirty wearing sandals and it was common practice to have your feet washed to clean them, um, usually before the meal, which is interesting in, the, in our story because Jesus does it after the meal, but it was a usual practice. What is the most unusual thing is before this time in history, no superior had ever washed the feet of an inferior. There's no account in any ancient literature of, say, a Roman centurion washing the feet of his soldiers. But you have the opposite. There's no rabbi in Jewish literature that ever washed his disciples' feet except for at this moment. So this is the thing that is in Peter's head. It's creating some confusion. He doesn't quite get it. He's not understanding. This is not how his culture works. Hierarchy was very important. 
respecting people in authority and respecting elders and all that sort of stuff that still exists in many cultures today was core to the way Peter thought and processed what was happening. So, of course, when Jesus takes off his outer garment, he actually looks like a slave with his, just his undergarments on and then putting a towel around his waist. He looked, he actually took on the appearance of a slave. And so when he gets the bowl of water and comes to wash the feet of the disciples, it interests me that it's only Peter that basically has this argument with him. Mind you, I think the other disciples were just too chicken to bring it up. That's what I think is really happening because it's so countercultural to where Peter is living. He can't, he's in a state of confusion. If anything, as the disciple, he should be washing the rabbi's feet. But this phrase is what sticks out to me. You don't realise right now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. That little phrase, later you will understand, just sticks out to me. I think the journey that Peter was on in the way Jesus had to transform and grow him has a similarity to the way Jesus wants to grow and transform you and me. Now, Jesus isn't physically here to wash our feet, but there's a whole lot of stuff that God allows or even does in our lives that creates so much confusion. We're not sure. Sometimes it's painful. Sometimes it's countercultural to what we understand or what we expect, what we think should happen. It goes against our will, our plans. And this phrase I think we can learn a lot from is later you will understand. I mean, immediately it says to me, you're not going to understand everything that God does in your life at that time. You're just not going to always get it. And it's going to be confusing, like it was for Paul Peter. You're not quite, you know, you'd like to understand. I think as Westerners, we, we love the concept of explaining everything and, you know, dotting every I, crossing every T before we do anything. But I don't think that's God's way. Discipleship is a journey or a path that he has us on and it's his way, his will. It's not your way. It's not my way. It's not your will. It's not my will. It's his. And sometimes we won't understand why. We won't even understand how come. We won't understand what for. But later we'll understand. And I'm sure you would have some experiences in your life where you've gone through something that you found quite like a crisis or was traumatic, but then maybe months or a year or a couple of years later, you have this revelation that the hand of God was involved in that. Even though it was difficult to walk through, the hand of God was involved. So later, we will understand. You know, when Jesus first met Peter, Peter wasn't his name. So anybody know his name? Simon. In fact, the way, I like the way John writes. John's very poetic as, a, as one of the four gospel writers. He writes in a very unique style in his own language and he, he almost writes in a poetic structure. And it's interesting, in the way he accounts for this story, he's sort of picking on his friend Peter, he actually calls him Simon Peter. So when Jesus and Peter first met, he wasn't called Peter, he was called Simon. And it's Jesus that gave him the name Peter. So Simon, as you probably know, means reed. The idea of this blowing in the wind at the edge of the water bank, you know, any breeze or anything that takes place is going to push it. It's a concept of being um, sort of wavering, unstable. 
And isn't it funny, even before any transformation takes place in Peter, any discipleship takes place in Peter, Jesus says to him, you are Simon, but now you're Peter, which means what? Stable. Is he stable here in this story? Or in the story of cutting off the ear of the high priest? Or 70 times, how many times do I forgive? I mean, we could grab a whole lot of his stories. He's not yet quite there, but this is the journey that Jesus, God the Father and the Spirit has him on. They're trying to transform him into the person. Now listen to this. Peter becomes the leader of the early church. Does he look like leadership material when you read this story? Would you choose him to run the whole church if you were Jesus? Well, it's probably good that you're not Jesus then, because he did. So there's a discipling transformation thing that's happening in Peter, but it's confusing. He doesn't understand it. And there's something deep that Jesus is doing with every encounter with his man to take him from being unstable to being a rock who can actually lead the church of Christ in the first century. But that's discipleship. God wants to take you from something that in you is unstable or creates an anxiety or is painful or is unresolved and he wants to take that and not avoid it, not, not talk about it, not, not, let's not bring that up. He wants to take that and actually transform you into something that's more stable. But it's difficult. That, that journey is painful. It's confusing for us. We don't get it. We don't understand it. Um, just this is a little question for my friend Ian back there. Can you put the clock up for me, Ian? Because otherwise I'll waffle all day and you'll get sick of me and you'll probably leave and I'll still be talking. So what's the process of being discipled that you and I are on, that Peter was on, and probably the, all the rest of the disciples as well? Well, I think it is mentioned in verse 7 where Jesus does things for us, in us, through us, to us, we don't, it's, the words are true, verse 7, read it again. Now you don't realise what I'm doing, but later you will understand. We'll understand later. So this process of discipleship, let me mention, I've just got a couple of things, and if you're taking notes, I encourage you to write these down. I think there's sort of three realities for most people on this journey of discipleship. And let me preface, before I give you the sort of three that I've got listed here, I think discipleship's a um, relationship of cooperation with God. So God, I mean, I think of the things that God's taken me through, both pleasant and painful, and I can choose not to cooperate with where God's taken me. I mean, I think we do it all the time. We might do it in ways that are sociably acceptable. We might even do it in ways that we can explain it away with Christian phrases and cliches. But I think the issue for most of us is if you really want to mature, if you really want to go from unstable to stable in Christ, then you will be taken on a journey that is unexpected, difficult at times, but that's the only way you get there and it only happens if you cooperate when God takes you there, even if you don't understand why you're there, even if you don't understand the benefit of why God would allow something to happen, both painful and pleasant things, you have to cooperate. I have to cooperate. God can open the door or take us down that track, but we can just sit there and not go any further. And There's plenty of stories in the gospel where that's actually what happened. 
where they, you know, Jesus turns to the crowd and he tells them two parables, two stories. You know, if you want to build a tower, you've got to count the cost. If a king wants to go to war against another king, he's got to count the cost. And then the gospel writer says, and from that day on, many didn't follow Jesus. So we have to be real with our expectation of this discipleship journey that we're all on. And, and what God does in me and to me to grow me is going to be different from you, but I think the process is exactly the same. So you have to cooperate. So that underpins everything else I'm about to say. If you don't cooperate with God, you will stay immature as a disciple. I think it's that simple. So here's the three things that are just for me. Number one, and this is so positive, you're going to run up and high-five me. Every single life includes trauma and crisis. Disciples are no exception. We're all going to go through it. You can high-five me later, it's okay. Thanks, I saw that, Meredith, thank you. You know, the betrayal of someone you really trusted, being mistreated by someone you thought that actually had your back, or being misunderstood when the attention was good but someone's misconstrued it at work and, you know, now your name's mud. Not fitting in with, you know, other Christian groups or you're really invested and you've given a lot to uh, maybe another congregation or another church structure and it, it fell over or went south and, you know, I mean, I could, I could arrange a whole lot of things, you know, family tragedies, the death of someone that you love that was sudden, um, your children are off track, I mean, whatever we can pull out for our own personal experiences, I don't think any of us escape crisis or trauma. And a lot of those things are very traumatic. I think a lot of the things that God uses to grow us feels like trauma at the time. It feels very traumatic, like Peter. And like Peter, we say to God, no, you're not doing that. We may not say it verbally, but through our actions. We stop cooperating with God. Or we don't let him examine us like Ross was talking about. You know, there's different ways of actually keeping God almost at a safe distance. You know, it's a very Christian way to do it. So we'll still praise God. We'll still read the occasional verse. But we know God's trying to change something in us and we, it's just too difficult for us. So we want to leave it. But nobody escapes it. It doesn't matter how spiritual you think you are. That's not the issue. The issue is... God is trying to grow and mature you. Here's the second thing. We all encounter limits. We don't really have a theology of limits, but we should. None of us can do everything. None of us are called to do everything. Some people experience limitations in their bodies when they get ill um, or if they have um, some physical accident that limits or restricts their ability to actually look after themselves. But there are other ways we become disabled. Sometimes it's emotional because of a trauma that happened to us and it becomes a limitation. I actually think limitations is one of God's great gifts because we're not supposed to be able to do everything all the time. And my journey of being discipled through my traumas or crises are going to be different to yours, which actually... Look at it this way. Your limitation is not just a negative, it's a positive because there are some things you can do very well because of what you've been through and because of what you've experienced. There are some things you can do that I could never do because I haven't been on the same journey of discipleship that you have. 
You know, this whole idea of comparing ourselves with each other, it's nonsense. Because what God wants to do in me is going to be different from you. But the way he accomplishes it, it's the same. It's confusing at times. It feels like a crisis. I don't understand at the moment. I want to try and avoid it at all costs. I want to argue with God like Peter. It feels the same, but God's trying to do in me something that's a little bit different to you. I think we need to create a theology of limitations. Look at it this way. A violinist doesn't complain there's only four strings on his violin. That's pretty limiting to only have four strings, isn't it? So it depends on how you see where God is taking you and what God's doing in you. So... We, you know, when we're young, I think we're fearless. We think we can do anything. You know, when you're, a, when you're a young teenager, we probably all went through that sort of phase. But I think as you, as you mature, both in age but also in wisdom and your relationship with God, you actually realise God doesn't want you to do everything. And it's, it's limiting. But I think sometimes that's a gift from God because your, your weakness, your trauma can become your greatest strength, which is a gift to other believers in the, in the long run. I mean, we know scriptures that talk about this idea when it says, um, you know, when you grieve, you can grieve with someone because you've been through something similar. We sort of gloss over this idea that God uses everything for our good. doesn't mean everything is good that happens to us. doesn't mean that everything feels good that happens to us. But what it does mean in Romans 8 is that God will take everything that's happened to you and use it towards your good, which is his will. So here's the third one. I think part of discipleship is learning to let everything go. And we talk about the word submission. Oh, yes, I'm in, I'm in submission to God, you know. We, t- we talk about these concepts, but... <laughs> It's different when you're in the middle of it and God's stripping everything off you, limiting you. You're in the middle of a crisis. But I, th- I actually, um, I've got a strange idea. I think ageing and death is the moment where you realise you have to let go of everything. You're not in charge of anything. You don't actually control much at all. Now, it's countercultural because, you know, our culture says, you know, bigger better, faster, easier, you know, feels good. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, well, I'm going to strip everything away from you. And here's why I think the reason is. I think some of us as Christians are not really following God. We're following the good feelings of the style in which we worship God. We're following a buzz. But we're not really being discipled. So, it's, you know, people say, oh, I love worship. It's great. Worship was fantastic this morning, you know. They get like a kick out of it. But are they letting God penetrate past that good feeling? Are we worshipping the feeling or are we worshipping God regardless of what we go through, how we feel? Some people say, oh, we need more of the word. You know, the word's going to save us. It's, so I think it's the same thing. We often feel like... We, we, you know, if you get good buzz from reading more of the Bible and Bible study, and look, I'm wired that way. I love reading the Bible, the historical stuff. I like reading in the original language. I mean, I could do that all day, every day, but that doesn't mean I'm being discipled just because I'm reading it. 
Like I just told you, you know, when I read the Lord's Prayer recently and God spoke to me, bang! That's unpleasant. That's easy to read. Not my will. Oh, yes, Lord, not my will, but yours. And then God says, well, go and do this. I'm not doing that. (laughs) It's comedy. I think God must laugh at it. You never laugh at your own children when they say one thing, but you know they're not going to do it. God must do the same with us. So we have to be careful. I think in the Western world in particular, where most of our practical needs are met, I know we struggle at different levels at different times, but most practical needs are met in the Western world. Let's not follow the good feelings we get from our style of Christianity, but let's truly submit to the God who is the God of Christianity. Because the feelings will come and go. Now, when you go through a crisis, you know this from your own experience, God feels so far away, doesn't he? You ever had those times where it's so difficult for you even just to get out of bed and you know other Christians will say oh, I just got to read the Bible more I call them more sermons read more pray more trust more have more faith how do you do that you can't do that when you're feeling traumatized or you feel like you're a lost you're lost in the wilderness and God's so far away you might even try and pray and ask God for help but it feels like you're talking to the wall right So here's the one thing I want you to remember from today. When Jesus says to Peter, you don't realise now what I'm doing, but later you will understand, here's the practical outcome of that statement. You have to stay with Jesus no matter how you feel. It's not based on how you feel. Forget that. Sometimes you'll feel great. Church will be great. Your life's great. Your family's great. Work's great. Other times everything's going to feel like it's all falling apart and there are too many, well, they're not really disciples. Too many Christians abandon God at the moment where he's trying to transform them through the pain and they leave the church, they blame God, you know, or they blame other Christians and that's the reason why they can't still fellowship at any church or let's toughen up a little bit here. If we're going to be submissive, to the transformation discipleship journey that God has us all on, there are days it's going to seem like it's impossible and you have to stay with Jesus every day. It's the only way to do it. You've got to stay with Jesus in the dark times, in the confusing times, in the times where you feel like you can't even come through these doors to worship God. You have to stay in relationship with Jesus. If you quit... You choose to not cooperate with God and you'll end up blaming him for things he's not responsible for. God isn't responsible for the way other people treat you. God isn't responsible for the way you interpret how you've been treated. You are. Is it painful? Sure it is. But for all Peter's you know, failings and mistakes, the one thing Peter did is he didn't quit. Now, even later on, you know, after, after cutting off the high priest here, if you keep reading the way John records Peter's journey, is, of course, he denies Christ. He denied that he ever knew him. So, he's, you know, this is not about perfection. We don't always have to get it right. Peter still didn't get it right after this. Even when Jesus said to him, lady, you will understand. You know, when Jesus is on the cross and there's talk about who used to follow this rabbi, Peter goes, oh, not me. It's not about perfection. We're all going to mess up. But Peter didn't quit. 
You probably felt like you wanted to. In the 15th century, there was a Christian writer who is, is known as St. John of the Cross. He wrote a little booklet called The Dark Night of the Soul. And he explores this concept that in the, in the wilderness experiences, in the painful times, in the confusing moments, the only discipleship thing you can do is stay with Jesus, stay the course. When it feels like you're in the midst of darkness, you can't see a way out, there's no light at the end of the tunnel, you feel like God's abandoned you. He said, in the dark nights of the soul, that's the phrase that he uses, you've got to stay with Jesus because he's doing something in you. I I think it's a bit like this. Let me finish with this. I I I hate gardening, you know. I I think it's part of the curse from Genesis 3, but that's another story. I'll tell you my little funny joke about that another day. Now, my little garden at home, which is not very big, sometimes it gets weeds. And, you know, I can, you know, cut the grass or slash it or... But unless I pull those weeds out by the roots, they're coming back. And I think the insecurities or the sufferings that you've been through and that I've been through, where we haven't understood why God allowed it, what God's doing, painful experiences from the past or our own stupidity of messing things up or the fact that we've got you know, behaviours and patterns of behaving that we've brought in from our family of origin into our Christianity or into our church. The only way to get rid of those things is to allow God to pull it out by the roots. And you trying harder or trying more or trying to act like you're good and, you know, God is with you and all that sort of stuff, that's just like cutting the grass, but the weed's going to come back. That's why it's not, it doesn't work. You have to submit to the journey that God has you on. There is no other way. Later, you will understand. You won't understand at the time, but the only way to be transformed truly, the only way to grow truly, the only way to be discipled is to allow those painful moments where you're still with Jesus, even though you don't get it, you don't understand it. You'd rather run in the opposite direction because that's how we feel, right? In, in those wilderness experiences, in those dark nights, we would rather run away from God. But you've got to stay with him. That's the one thing Peter did. He still messed up. You and I will still make mistakes. We'll have regrets. We'll do wrong things. But if we stay with Jesus and cooperate with the transformation journey that he has us on as disciples, I don't know about you, but I want to grow up. I don't want to be ruled by my own stupidity or my own insecurities. I don't want to bring that into my relationship with Jesus. And that's why it is not my will, but his. So I just want to simply actually encourage you today. I'm not sure how you feel today. You might have come to church feeling fantastic and that's great. Maybe you came to church feeling really distant from God and you just... You were lucky you got through the door, but I'm glad you're here. Because God God hasn't abandoned you. He's right with you. You may not always feel that God's right there, but let's not follow the feeling. Let's submit to what the journey God has us on. Let's bring all of who we are, our failings, our faults, our character flaws, our past experience, let's bring everything 
under the cross and see what God wants to do with it. That's what I want you to do. Stay the course. Don't quit. Like, like you, I have a number of friends who have quitted their relationship with God. Life hasn't got any better for them. It's probably got worse. And so we have to make sure that we stay with Jesus, even if we feel like we want to run in the opposite direction. That's the journey of being discipled. Now, God can speak to you through this message. God can speak to you through a conversation you'll have later this week. God can speak to you as you open up the Scriptures and read either a story or a favourite verse. God can speak to you while you're talking to Him in prayer. But whatever you do, stay the course. Don't quit. Because Jesus is transforming us from the inside out. It's not about appearances like our Western culture tells us. It's about heart issues. That's what it is. So here's what I want to do. Why don't you stand with me as I just bring this to a close. I simply want to say if there's, if you want someone to pray with you, to encourage you, I mean, regardless of what the issue is for you personally, you don't even have to share it with them. I want you to come forward. We're just going to take a few minutes as we close just to pray. So if you feel like you'd like some encouragement, you'd like someone to pray and support some crisis or something that you're not really understanding, why don't you come to the front right now? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what other people think. We're all the same. If you just want someone to pray and encourage you, maybe you'll hear from the Lord today. I believe every time we come under the ear of God, He often does speak to us. And it's not always in the way that you expect. It's not always the booming voice. We are all children of God. And you know what? You need God just as much today as a Christian as the day that you decided to follow Him. You don't need Him any less at any point in your lifetime. So can I have the ministry team just come and pray? Just gonna just wait just one or two moments. If anybody else wants to come out, please feel free to do so. And just while they're being prayed for, I want to encourage the rest of us. Submit yourself on the journey that God's got you on. You may not always understand it. It may feel difficult for you. But later, you will understand. If you stay with Him, you will understand. It's confusing at times. It's painful at times. But the words of Christ, listen to this. You don't realise now what I'm doing. That's what He said to Peter. But later, you'll understand. Let me just close off by praying, shall I? Father, without the gift of your son, none of us would have gathered here this morning. And Lord, like Peter, we all have things we don't understand. When you, when you do something in our lives that is confusing to us or it feels painful, we don't understand it. So Lord, I pray, Father, that we would be true disciples that submit to your will. Not just in word, not just by coming to celebrate your goodness, but in every single day, even the rest of this afternoon or, or tomorrow when we're at work or, or we're looking after the children or whatever we're doing, Lord, I pray, Father, that your will would be done in our lives. 
May we be in submission to your plan. May we cooperate with your discipling of us to grow and mature us. I pray this for myself and I pray this for all of my brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. We're going to finish up right there. Um, If you're visiting with us, come into the Connect Lounge just at the back there and grab a tea and coffee um, just on the other side of the foyer. Have a great day. May the Lord bless you and uh, we'll see you next week.